point out of the New Testament was written for a specific reason that uh, that uh, one of the mistakes we sometimes make is by picking up and reading this letter as if it was first of all written directly to us when in reality the writer was writing to a particular people at a particular time dealing with specific problems. And so then to be fully understood, we need to go back and take our minds back to that point in time, that point in history, and the problem he's dealing with, and then, and then concentrate, so far as our study goes, on just simply seeing what he's saying to those people about that situation at that time. Then after we've come to understand the, the book that way, then we take those eternal truths and principles and everything and make application. Uh, to ourselves today, but the first approach just to see what it, he's actually saying to them in the situation. Now, at the time that John writes, there's a there's a strong similarity between all four of John's first four books, uh, first, second, third John, and the Gospel according to John. At the time John is writing, that there has a arisen a group uh, within the church now that is having problems with the concept of the deity of Jesus, or the fact that God has become flesh and dwelling, dwelling among man. And what happened is uh, Christianity went out into the world. There were Jews, of course, that was converted. And every time a Jew was converted, remember the Jews had problems with trying to bring circumcision in and bind it on Christians, trying to bring some of their various uh, holy days and, and special events and, and bind them on other Christians. and. And so then there were special letters, like in Galatians, that dealt in Hebrews, that dealt, you know, specifically with that problem. Then there were Gentiles had various problems, like the people at Corinth came from a very immoral background, and and they brought that background into the church, and they had to be rebuked very strongly and 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 set in another course. Well, at the time that John is writing here, there was several mystery religions uh, that uh, were among the people at this time in the Roman Empire. And one of the most common was a group that has come down in history known as the Gnostics, or Gnosticism. And the word itself just simply means to know. And uh, they were among the most influential of all of the pagan religions. Uh, the, the Gnostics believed in God. Uh, they believed in a concept of a savior. They believed in the concept of, e of eternal life. And they believed that, that you come to know truth just through your own intellect and perception and, and figuring out and reasoning and things like this. And so anyway, the Gnostics, through their own reasoning and through their own perceptions, had come to the conclusion that it would be impossible for God to come to earth and dwell in human flesh because that since flesh was imperfect and sinful and God was perfect, there could be no uniting of the two. Therefore, what Christians were being taught about Jesus being God incarnate was wrong. Now, a lot of these Gnostics were converted to Christianity based on the evidence for the resurrection. And just as there were Jews that came in based on the evidence for the resurrection and then had to be taught in other areas, and other people that had to be taught in areas that were converted based on the evidence for the resurrection, so it is with a lot of these others that were converted. And so John addresses this, and like when you read the Gospel according to John, just think of the way he starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he comes on down, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the entire emphasis in the Gospel according to John 
is the deity of Jesus, the fact that he was both God and man. And that was the great truth of, of that gospel. Well, here in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, we have the same thing. There is the Antichrist that he mentions in this letter. And the Antichrist is just somebody that's denying the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God come in the flesh. It was that, it was that simple, that uh, he denied the, that, that God literally could dwell in human flesh. And so when John writes, he's wanting to answer that problem and deal specifically with the deity of Jesus. And then in the process, uh, there's, he's going to give some instruction about walking in the light, fellowship among Christians, and how you would know a true Christian. And what I think we'll see when we read through here is that there's two words that are going to come up over and over again uh, that involves walking in the light and being a true Christian, though. And that's the word belief and love. And it's going to be that you just simply can't be right with God unless you believe in Jesus and that uh, one that is born of God is recognized by the fact that he believes in Jesus. And then right along with this, there's going to be this teaching on love that anybody who loves has been born of God. If you don't love, you have not been born of God. And, and then he'll involve other statements within the realm of love itself. But these two statements will come up over and over just involving belief in the deity of Jesus and then love and the recognition that if you love, that everything else seems to take care of itself so far as our relationships and things like this. Okay, let's go ahead and start with that uh, first uh, chapter. And let's see, uh, let's start over here. Okay, uh, Bob, we'll start over here to the right with you in this first chapter, first verse. And let's uh, take three or four verses each, you know, try to hit it so it if it breaks in an awkward place, read another verse and whatnot. And let's go on down through uh, through the second chapter and the eleventh uh, uh, verse. And that's a break, and you start another paragraph after that. So it'll be from the first chapter through the second chapter and the eleventh verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word blind. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. That God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in all his sins, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the same sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
who know that we have come to him and to obey his command. The man who says, I know him, that does not do what he commands to lie, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. We are the same spirit in him as Jesus did. Maybe I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which was what you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness is blind of his eyes. Okay, notice at the very first how he starts off in a very concrete way concerning this thing of, of Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have noticed now, he says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, and testify unto it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim this to you, what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. All right, now, think on some of the writings of the other apostles along the same line as they wrote to these people that what happened, keep in mind, Christianity at this time is not the major religion of the world. Christianity is looked on as a little wayward sect within Judaism. And so here you are in this big world with all these people, and here's this little group of people that you hear about that claim that Jesus is literally God come in the flesh. Now, you've got to admit that would sound pretty outrageous to you, that somebody is claiming to be literally God come in the flesh. And you've got all these different philosophies in vogue at this time. So the apostles would go in, and they would convert people by the miracles that took place to confirm their testimony, as showing how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, the eyewitnesses' accounts of, uh, of his resurrection. And so based on all of the evidence, they would convert people. But then you can imagine what happens when the apostles get out of town, and you've got this group of people here, and they're going out trying to reach others. Then you begin to have all these sophisticated arguments and, uh, against Jesus and, and against the resurrection and things like that. And to give you examples of some other places now, remember Paul writes to the Corinthians, and then in the 15th chapter, he proceeds to say that this gospel that we preached unto you, unless you believe it in vain, and then he says that Jesus appeared first to so-and-so, and then he appeared to so-and-so, and he appeared to James, he appeared to the apostles, and he appeared, appeared to me also, and that he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament scripture, and, and then he comes on down that if Christ has not been raised, then let's, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for we all, we all, we're all going to die. But his point, what had happened is that somebody had challenged that and began to put doubt in their mind. And so he's going back and reaffirming that their belief is based in evidence. Peter makes a statement that we did not follow cunningly devised tales and all, but things which we've seen, experienced with our own eyes and all, that we declared unto you. Well, John's doing the same thing. Somebody has disturbed these people. 
by denying, and John's going to get, we're going to get to the false teacher who is proclaiming against Jesus, that John identifies as the Antichrist. Somebody has really disturbed the minds of these people by challenging uh, the testimony that they had believed about Jesus. And so John starts off in a real concrete way that when we talk to you, we didn't talk to you about some vision that we had seen or some nebulous experience or anything like that. He said, concerning Christ, we saw him, we heard him, and we touched him. And in other words, in every way that you could experience another fellowship with another human being, they had experienced that with Jesus. And this was a very concrete thing. And that as a result of Jesus, we have fellowship with God, and we want you to realize this, because you can have fellowship with God and fellowship with, with uh, us as a result of this that we have in Christ. And so nailing down that this is a real concrete experience, and again, to convey to your mind as to how this can happen to them, you have something proven to you, and you believe it, you accept it, and, and then somebody comes along and puts doubt in your mind, We've all had that, I think, in various... How many times have you checked everything before you got out of the house and you don't think a thing in the world about it and you get out there and, and then your mate says to you, are you sure the arm is unplugged? <laughs> and you know that you've unplugged that arm. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had this happen to me. I know I've unplugged that arm. Are you sure that the arm's unplugged? And I think, man, I'd, well, I don't know. <laughs> and so you come back in and you check and sure enough, it's unplugged, but by saying that, somebody could put doubt in your mind. Or are you sure you locked the door? Are you sure that you saw that or heard that? And so somebody can challenge you and really begin to put doubt. And, you, and what you do, you go back and recheck the information. Uh, you go back and you recheck the book. Did it, does it really say that? Or you go check that person. Did you really say this now? I've been challenged on this matter. Or is the arm plugged in? Well... This happened with these people. And so that's why that on the one hand, remember like he writes to the Galatians and he says that I'm amazed that you're so soon departed from the gospel that I revealed to you, that they lived in a world where the vast majority were not Christians. They were pagans and Jews, and they were actually fighting and trying to stamp out Christianity. And so here you come to believe something, and even though you've heard the evidence for it, examined it and all, the apostles leave town, and here you are with all of your pagan neighbors and, and Jewish people that are trying to stamp it out, and they're challenging very hard what you believe. And so then you begin to think, well, is it really so? Well, then the apostle is writing back, and he's reaffirming to your mind that no, that, that there's nothing mystical about this thing. See, now the Gnostics, they would have God as a spirit only, but not in human flesh. So what does, how does John answer that? We heard him, we saw him, and even our hands touched him concerning the word of life. Well, they wanted to have the word of life, the Gnostics, as just the force that emitted out from God, but had nothing to do with human flesh itself. So that's why, that listen to John again in the Gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. All right, now see, this is something the Gnostics believe, that, that the word and information came, came from God, but then... John departs from the Gnostics, and he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that was the part they rejected. And so John is hitting right at the very thing that these Antichrist Gnostics would actually deny, and that was the fact that God literally became incarnate and became flesh. Uh, 
Our big difference today with the uh, Muslims is over the same issue. The Muslims accept Jesus as a prophet of God. And, and they have the Old Testament scriptures, and they will accept the New Testament scriptures. Uh, and uh, those parts of it that do not have anything to do with Jesus as deity or God, their problem with a Christian is your acceptance of Jesus as literally God incarnate. The Jews, the same thing today. The Jews will actually accept Jesus. In fact, uh, I guess it's last summer, Steve and I, any of you, uh, now Jack, as I know, have you ever heard the John Ankleberg show on TV? John, uh, you have, uh, he had a, a, a good debate on there one time between a Jewish rabbi, and then he had a, a scholar on there from the Christian faith, and this guy uh, taught at a, I forget what Nazarene school it was, but it was one of the Nazarene seminaries that he, that he taught at, and he had a rabbi, and they were debating uh, this, the Jesus. And the interesting thing to me was all of the admissions that the rabbi admitted. I mean, they acknowledged so many historical facts. And see, the rabbi, they will acknowledge Jesus as a great prophet. And, but what they will not accept him as is God incarnate. And that's, their, that's why that uh, we are guilty of blaspheming from the Jewish standpoint and also from the Muslim standpoint. And so the big difference between us and the Jew and the Muslim is our belief in the deity of Jesus. Well, this is exactly what John is dealing with there. That's the, that's the big factor, uh, was the deity of Jesus, that you had God who literally became flesh. And so he starts off by letting them know just how concrete uh, his experience was with God. Anybody else want to make any comments on that, on his introduction there and that uh, God become flesh? Uh, Thomas is an example that the disciples were not gullible. You know, he wanted to put in touch for the males. You know, if you think it's resurrection, they really wanted to yeah, remember even when they saw Jesus out on the uh, water, uh, that first they thought it was a ghost, an angel, and then he says, touch me, but a ghost or an angel does not have flesh and blood. And then the same example she gave of Thomas, that the uh, same thing, unless I put my hands and everything like that, but uh, definitely that, that was, they were not gullible, and that was a difficult thing to believe. Uh, remember Philip, uh, show us the Father, and then we'll believe. And remember, it says, Jesus, Philip, don't you still under, don't you understand yet when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen, you've seen God? And they, they still uh, found that extremely difficult to understand, this business of God, God become flesh. And even uh, Jesus' own brothers did not become believers until after the resurrection. They, they, that was just a very strong statement that he was literally God become flesh. Uh, before he was condemned for blasphemy, remember again that even though the Jews saw all those miracles, but see what gave them problem about Jesus is his claim to be both the Son of God in a special sense. And so remember he quoted from the Psalms and said, now whose son is the Messiah? And they said he's the son of David. And, he, then, he, and then he quoted the Psalm and he said, uh, if he's David's son, why did David call him Lord? And he says, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, set up thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies footstool like thee. Now, if David calls him his Lord, how is he his son? Well, the only way he can be the son of David and David's Lord is through a virgin birth. 
and be God incarnate. And that was the point that he was trying to get them to see that their own scriptures taught that. But it, they just, it was difficult for them to accept. And again, I think understandably why. You know, that is God become flesh is a very difficult concept to understand. And, and when it hit the world new, it was very difficult. And that's their problem all the way through here. Uh, Paul and his writings, uh, remember to the Philippians, uh, although he existed equal with, equal with God, he counted not that equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and come to this earth. And again, the emphasis on the fact that he was literally God and existed equal with God and then had emptied himself and, and come to this earth. Well, again, when Paul wrote that, all through there, uh, he's not just writing that to be writing it. Uh, they're having problems in the, the people that they are trying to reach. Are, are combating Christianity by fighting against this whole concept of Jesus literally being God incarnate. That uh, deal with the thought that there can be no fellowship between man and God unless there is a knowing or acceptance that he truly is incarnate. Right. That's uh, what John is going to, what he says right there, like in verse. Uh, uh, three, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And what he's going to wind up saying in John is exactly what you said, that there is absolutely no fellowship with God except through Christ. And that even the people in the world that would claim, whether it's the Jew or the Muslim, that claim to be followers in God, see the plain teaching of the New Testament is that you can't have God without Jesus. And that's it's, it, it is that. In fact, hold your place here. And flip over here to Second John. Second John, verse uh, starting with verse seven. Uh, let's see, Louise, would you, I think it was up to you. Now, did you read that seven through eleven? Notice this. Now, this is interesting because this passage, part of it, is sometimes taken out of context. And I think this is like uh, where it says, starting in verse. Uh, Tim's coming in on this job. Uh, in verse 9, where it says, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And, all right, this has been used by sometimes groups will take that, and it's like that they use this as an excuse to withdraw fellowship from anybody who differs with them on any particular individual teaching. You know, on, uh, that, uh, you know, it's like that, well, you're not continuing in the teaching of Christ, if you differ with me on this particular point, I'm, I've got the truth on that point. And so then you can't have anything to do with that person. But it's not in its context. He's talking about the deceiver is a person who does, and the Antichrist is the one who does not deny that Jesus, one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. He says any such person is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Watch out, all right? The person here that he's talking about they had given them this teaching of Jesus being God come in the flesh. 
But then some of these Christians have been persuaded by the Gnostics and all that this is not so. And he's saying that anybody that does not continue in this teaching is without God. In other words, you cannot have God without Jesus. And so then you don't receive him into your house and bid him Godspeed. And so these teachers that were among the Christians that are out here teaching that Jesus is not God come in the flesh, he said he's the Antichrist, and when you receive him into your house, and see, in, that, in the first century, the way they supported religious leaders is that they received them, uh, teachers, they received them into their house and fed them and ever took care of them while they were preaching in that particular area. Then they'd go on their way. And so John is saying that this person that denies the deity of Jesus, that he's God come in the flesh, you don't support him in his teaching and receive him into your house and everything because if you do, you bid him God speak. And it's really a complete rape of that passage, I think, to take just that last two verses and then to beat everybody over the head who differs with you on some particular point that you're both studying. When, when John is basing his fellowship on the deity of Jesus and, and the fact that he is God come in the flesh and everything, and that's the whole context on verses 7 through 9. But right, I think that's, uh, that was the thing. That's why probably that uh, the, uh, the big difference, for example, with, uh, with a group like, say, the Jehovah's Witness, in that the very thing they deny is that Jesus is God. And that's why that, that sets them apart from all other. In fact, they're saying something very similar to what was said at this time, that, that Jesus is a created being by God, but he was not literally uh, part of the Godhead who created everything that is. But John is emphasizing, and, and I think that when we get through, we'll see that Christian fellowship is tied up in the deity of Jesus, and then walking in the light is going to be walking by principle that he articulates and all, and from within the light, there is actual sin, and that, and that people too fall short and are always studying and making mistakes and having to confess their faults and everything. But as long as they believe in the deity of Jesus and they have their trust in him, and then they respectfully are walking to the best they can, they're going to be covered with his blood. Okay, look at this now in verse, uh, back over here in, in uh, 1 John, and he establishes this principle now of what a concrete thing this is of, of Christ being God coming in the flesh. Uh, one of the statements that I heard several years ago that, uh, that speaks to me in this, uh, I said uh, the reason that the television is so much more effective than the radio was the fact that you get through two senses. You see it and you hear it both. Right. Well, John here is using three of our senses. Uh, if you can see, you can feel, and you can hear uh, it gives you a, a much broader perspective of the the information that's being presented. He said, we have seen, we've heard, right. we've touched. You confidence in that, can't you? <laughs> that's better than just having a telephone call and yeah. sit down and have a fellowship with that person. And, and it's, it's only, it just makes it a lot better. Well, it, more it's, it's a, it just puts more icing on the cake, if you will. In fact, well, I feel that. Right. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm talking about. I'm, it's not hearsay. Right. And I think that uh, up until Jesus, and I think that's, that's an excellent illustration, that up until Jesus, what man had was, maybe I want you to prepare the telephone call, there was the prophet that spoke the words, and then there were dreams and visions. But they really, uh, God was in the distance. He was, he was far away. 
they stood back in almost total fear of him. Either it was unbelief or fear. One or the other seems to be the case throughout that. And then with Jesus, for the first time, we have God coming down in such a way that he can be uh, seen and talked to and experienced in any way. And that we can look, and when we look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, we learn more about what God expects of us than we ever got out of the law. I mean, it's one. It's sort of like, uh, in fact, I think the the effect of that life, as opposed to just the law, is set forth again when Peter writes to a believing woman that's married to an unbelieving husband, and said that if he has not been won by the word, that you by your chaste behavior know that to win him. That the effect of the word in her life was actually more impressive than just the word itself when it came to morality. Uh, look at this, let's see, come on down to verse uh, uh, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Okay, so we can see that having fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Lord is involved in walking in the light, but we can also see something else. Walking in the light does not mean you're perfect, because it says if you walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And so obviously, there is sin while we are walking in the light. And then he goes on to say, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And, and his word has no place in our lives. And so the recognition here then, and, and where I think that uh, this needs, in several ways that we need to get it across, a lot of times people poke at uh, people that are not Christianity and who do not fully, not Christian, and do not fully understand it, will poke at Christianity because of the imperfection of any or all of the members, that uh, our sins of members and all. And what obviously they haven't got across is when you claim to be a Christian, the very fact, the very thing you're admitting is you're not perfect. I mean, a Christian is somebody who has just simply, in all humility, admitted that I do fall short of God's law, that I'm not perfect and I fall short of it, and that his salvation is, is going to be based on his trust in the atonement of Jesus, and he's willing to always repent, you know, those sins and all, but yet the statement is that he still fall short of that perfection there. And so you have walking in the light and then sin involved. Now, look over here to verse 9 and just use this because we want to ask the question now, what, what do you really mean then, walking in the light? I wouldn't worry about No, they're not bombing us, Lonnie. You might just caution all of them be a little quieter, but they're not bombing us. No. Mm -hmm. Rest up, it's great. It's not a new morning, is it? 
look at that verse 9 there. It's very, it said, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We know there's sin involved in the life. What is the principle? Look at verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks around the darkness. Everything, according to John, about walking in the light revolves around this principle of love. And I mean, in fact, uh, so much so to come over here to the, let's see, the third chapter. Uh, Verse 6 is Yeah, I was, uh, let's see. The fourth chapter, tell me the fourth chapter, and the seventh verse. Uh, Chris, would you read that please? Verses 7 through 12, uh, fourth chapter. Okay, now, keep that in mind, what we've read so far at starting, this thing of belief in the deity of Jesus, walking in the light, walking in the light involves love. Now look right over here in the fifth chapter, uh, First John, starting at verse 10. <clears throat> fifth chapter, First John, verse 10, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Lonnie, would you read that 10 on through verse 13? He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him alive. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Okay, and look at back over verse 4 and verse 15. In fact, uh, 15 and six, 4 and 15 and 16. Uh, did you read that, Steve? 15 and 16 chapter 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay, now, notice this right there how he ties the two, belief and love together. Now, what we've had all through this book, uh, through all five chapters, is this, number one, the affirmation that, that Jesus was God come in the flesh. It was a concrete experience that he literally was deity. And then salvation is tied up in belief in him. But then walking in the light involves this principle of love. 
And so the person who says that hates his brother, is in the, it doesn't matter what he says. If he hates his brother, he's in the darkness. If he loves, he's in the light. And then he comes over and says the same thing again, the fourth chapter, that you know you can't say that you love God and then hate your brother and that. And so all the if you love, you're born of God. Then he turns around and he says again, the person that is born again believes in Jesus, and and whoever confesses that Jesus is come in the flesh, you know, is born of God. And so you go back and forth between those two concepts all through John, and that is belief in the deity of, of Jesus. And salvation is tied up in your trust in that atoning sacrifice. You believe in him. And then, as believers in Jesus, God wants us to be the light in the world. And he wants us to walk in the light. And our fellowship with him and our fellowship with one another is contagious and walking in the light. And then he identifies walking in the light as his principle of love. And that his love, literally, will take care of it. Now, again, I might note on the word love, Although we just have the one word, love, that we use, in the, if you were reading this directly in the Greek, there's two words. There's agape uh, and then phileo. And phileo is this love that means a, a brotherly affection. And it's a type of thing that you pull out of other people by the way you conduct yourselves and all. The Philadelphia was named after the, this Greek word phileo, the city of brotherly love. Agape is a word that means an attitude of heart where you do what is best for another person. Well, and it may involve discipline. For example, when it says a parent who loves his child chastises him betimes. That's, a, that's agape. All right? Phileo can never be commanded. It's always in response to the other person's actions. You, you earn that from somebody. It's, it's based on feelings. And then, but agape is what's commanded. And agape is this type, this attitude, in other words, to say that you love your brother, if we're going to give it the definition, uh, this means an attitude towards him where you're going to act in his best interest. Or when Jesus said, uh, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and, and on this hangs the entire law of the prophets, and then another time he says, love God, love your fellow man, on this hangs the law of the prophets. Well, the second time, this royal law, he said exactly the same thing. He just literally defined agape. Uh, that uh, agape literally means doing what is best for the other person. And so that walking uh, in life with an attitude towards other people, that I'm going to act towards you in a way that is for your best interest. Well, with that understanding of love, you're going to see that you can actually put people in jail because of love. And you can spank somebody because of love. That uh, that you can tell somebody the truth uh, because of love. That love means acting in the best interest of that other person and doing, doing what you have to. God loves the whole world and, and it says whom he loves, he chastises and, and he disciplines. So it's, it's, it's not just a... Uh, uh, a wishy-washy type thing or something nebulous or a good feeling, but it's just a concrete thing of doing what's best for the other person. And so walking in the light there means having an attitude towards your fellow man that you're going to do unto him those things that are best for him. Uh, whether he deserves it or not, uh, you're going to love your enemy. Uh, whether he deserves your best or not, you're going to always act in a way that would be for his best interest when you're around. That, that action is then based on what your knowledge is and what you think is good for him. Right, it ha- that would have, to, it would have to come. But I think he gives us clue there when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
you know how you feel towards yourself. And like when he tells the man to love his wife as his own flesh, and he says, you nurture and cherish, you know, your own flesh, and you know, also treat her in the, in the same way. And then Jesus saying the same thing, which is do unto others as you would have them uh, do, un do unto you. But right, from within, that, uh, from within that framework, right, it would have to be your perception of what would be best for, for the other person. Understanding that conception of love, just knowing what's best for the other person, um, makes it easier to fulfill the plan to love your enemy. You know, you can you can do what's best for them. You can go ahead and speak to them, and you know, do whatever is best for them. But it's certainly hard to have a real warm feeling, feeling when someone slapped you or struck well, you. Sometimes I know before I learned the difference in the word, you know. You can be made to feel guilty, and I think Christians have sometimes because they think, well, I don't have a feeling, but that's phileo, and there's uh, the feeling is just like when it says love your enemy, that uh, that's agape, not phileo. You don't phileo your enemy, uh, that uh, feeling uh, is there for somebody that has responded in a certain way towards you, and then you have a response back, but with your enemy, uh, even though he's your enemy, if he's hungry, you can give him something to eat and hope all the time that, uh, that one of these days he'll repent. And I, and I think that's, to me, the way Christians ought to look uh, at others who are not living or doing right or who offend you in some way. You think, well, no, that's what that person is doing right now. But I never know. I, my hope is that he will repent. And, and so that if I go ahead and treat him in a courteous and a kind way, despite the fact he's that way, that, uh, it, well, like Romans 2, 4, says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That the hope is that someday he would repent. But on the other hand, there's nothing in love that would keep you from uh, chastising a person when, when they would actually need it. And God does us. That he chastises and he corrects. Uh, Timothy was supposed to love. In 1 Timothy 1, 5, Paul told Timothy the end of all the commands was love from a pure conscience and faith without hypocrisy. And then he turned right around and told Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and says the time will come when they will have itching ears and heap to themselves teachers of their own lust. So that all the time Timothy was loving, he was supposed to also to there would be times when he would have to rebuke or chasten. That uh, if somebody is doing something that is uh, harming themselves, say using alcohol, just as one example, then you're not acting in a loving way for that person if you just uh, ignore that and would act like it doesn't bother you at all for him to use it or anything like that. And when you know he's destroying himself, what do you do? If you love the person, then you're going to try to persuade him not to do that which is going to destroy him. It's just like a parent would try to persuade a child not to do negative things that would actually work to their disadvantage. Oh, are you familiar with the term eros? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, Aros. Yeah, Either way, the the Aros. Yeah, that now the in the Greek actually they had five terms. You had uh, now in the Bible, the New Testament, all you have is phileo and agape. But in their language, they also had Aros, which was the sexual love between a man and man and woman. And then you had Storke, which was the love of a mother, father, brother, sister or anything of that nature. But they, and they, when they're writing, they were much more specific than we are in using it. In other words, a lot of times when our young people say they're going to get married because they love that person, 
uh, the Greek would have had no problem there. They put Eros. And we use love for everything when really Eros would be more appropriate in that area. We kind of slam the word. We use a very lot of love. The Valentine Chevrolet. Yeah. That's a baseball game. Right. I love, love a ball game. Or I love this. But I think sometimes that we, we use that word so loosely that sometimes it has lost a lot of its meaning because of it. But they, uh, the Greek language was really much more precise. And, uh, you know, love and phileo had a difference, and the storke and the eros, there was a distinct difference in the time. I was, I was thinking that what I had read, it showed you, it went from the very shallow feelings to the agape being the deepest Right. Feeling. Right, it is. The, uh, uh, in fact, if agape is there, the, it can eventually cause phileo. If, if this person, uh, if you don't like this person uh, because they've been treating you wrong, but yet you force yourself to go ahead and be courteous and kind and everything, but the, the hope is that eventually you'll start to pull a different type of behavior out of that person that will then lead the phileo, you know, between you. And then, of course, the, what you mentioned right with the A-roll, with the A-roll, the end, the end result of that would hopefully be uh, agape. You know, that's the underlying principle of all of it. Yeah, I thought he had a good point when a when a wife or husband would make that statement in counseling that they just didn't love them anymore. And here he he's dealing with them as Christians. And he says, Well you're commanded to love your enemy. So they get even as an enemy they get in there on that, on that thing. So you don't really have any choice. You call it. You either and then of course, like we can say here, you either love them or you're gonna be lost. There's no, no two ways about it. You can't be in the like John said, and here again that big principle of the light, it is absolutely impossible. A Christian cannot have the remission of his sins unless he walks in the light. And John says you can, you're in the darkness if you hate your brother. You just simply have to love. You can have many imperfections. Uh, you can obviously, we, he says we all sin, we all fall short, but you cannot be in the light and not, not walk with an attitude of love, which you just, just simply cannot. And that's the same way towards God, you know, that love of God is number one, that we can make many mistakes and have many deficiencies, but the one thing that has to be there is, is actual love for God. Uh, on that principle, let me give a few more verses on that from others, just to show that the whole Bible really teaches that same thing. Uh, turn over first to Mark 12, uh, 28 through 31, and hold your, hold that, and then uh, John 13, 34 and 35. We get those two. Okay, we get that. Uh, uh, who, who's going to read last? Did you read last two? No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark, Barbara, you read Mark 12, 28 through 31, and then uh, Sandy, take John 13, 34 through 35, and then uh, Tim, you got your throat tonight? I don't know. I, I guess it comes in the Take uh, uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10. 
Okay? And that'll, Romans 13 will sum it up as to how that love literally will do it all. Okay, read that first now, that Mark 12, 28 through 31. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. Okay, now John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, so Jesus said his disciples would be identified by the fact that they actually love one another. He's also said, apparently by that question they asked him, that there was great debates among the Jews. In fact, in the secular writing of the Jews, they seem to have had any number of debates over what was the great commandments. In fact, there was several great rabbis. The greatest one at this day was a fellow by the name of Heliel, and then there was another one that's S-H-A-M-M-I, however that's pronounced, that they were the two great rabbis, and they were always debating these concepts over the great commands and all. And so Jesus summed it all up and said there are two great ones were simply love. All right, now... Listen to this in Romans 13, 8 through 10. He tells why love, and, and when we say love, that understood in the right sense, it takes nothing away from the commands of God or anything like that. In Romans 13, 8 through 10. Who's 10? You got that? Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love, the debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, so uh, when he, he doesn't get away from the command. He says love, if you have the agape love, you do what is best for the other person, all right? Now look at the commands. Obviously then, if you love somebody, you don't kill them. That's kind of their best interest. And, and, and the point is, now what we're going to point out, I think what we're doing in the New Testament, a Christian that operates on the principle of love does not need a lot of legalistic requirements. That if you love somebody, you don't kill them. If you love somebody, you don't steal from them. If you love somebody, you don't lie about them. If you love this man or this woman, then you don't commit adultery with his wife. You don't commit adultery against your wife. And so love takes care of love. True love, it's interesting because people commit adultery in the name of love. And yet according to Paul in Romans 13... Uh, true love would never allow adultery to happen. It happens because of a lack of love. And so you can go right down through the commands, and if you do what is for the best interest of the other person, then you're going to naturally fulfill the commands themselves. And so John is, to me, making it in, in many ways very simple, uh, this business of being a Christian, that uh, it revolves around the deity of Jesus, that he is literally God incarnate, God come in the flesh, Salvation is in him. We're in sin. We're all imperfect. But as long as we walk in the light, his blood will cleanse us of all sin. And then he says walking in the light means walking under this principle of love. And if you hate, there's just no way you can be in the light. Uh, you know, I, it took me years, I think, to see some of the things he's uh, saying because 
I was brought up in a religious group that's very fundamentalist, and we, you know, got really involved in a lot of legalistic requirements, and we based fellowship on you agreeing specifically with us on every little point and all like that. And I don't have any years I spent most of my time preaching, that kind of thing. And come to realize that, that how many times have you seen, and I know this is one of the things that, that, uh, that helped wake me up in church, somebody that was thinking of himself as, or herself as so righteous because they did four or five or six little legalistic points right, but obviously did not love their fellow man. I mean, their whole action and everything was such that there was no real love or feeling for their fellow man. And, and yet they were tying things up in this area and missing the boat. And how many times have Christians through the years fought over some point that we differ? In other words, I understand this verse one way, you understand it another way, and we get in a knockdown, drag-out fight and hurt one another's feelings. And, and the very principle, in other words, we can be in the light and the blood of Jesus will cleanse us of sins due to ignorance and mistakes and things of that nature and all. But it, it can't do anything about this thing if we don't love one another. And so in the process of fighting about some point sometime, we create an atmosphere where we walk out just about hating one another. And sometimes uh, Christians not even speaking to one another over some principle that they differ with and yet not realizing that far more important than this little principle that you're dealing with is this attitude of love. That, right. That has to be there. The, the, the attitude of, of love itself. Wasn't it Jesus that said to Martha, I think so many times how we, we try to remember so many things and all, and like you said, it just really, you can really simplify it by saying love your neighbor and love God. You yeah. know? And wasn't it Jesus that said to uh, Martha, you're bothered about many things, concerned about many things, and really there's one thing important? Right. And I think if we could keep that in mind, you know, and a lot of times in the rush of life, we could, you know, kind of calm down and see our way. The base thing that is taught from Genesis through Revelation is what? Mm -hmm. That's what Christianity is. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, to me, yeah. uh, without it, there's nothing. You can't build a house without a foundation. Right. And that's why so many sects of people are trying to do today. Uh, they're leaving out the, what has to be there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I was trying to think. Uh, without love, there's no love. I think of even Paul in 1 Corinthians you know, 13 where he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Or if I give my body to be burned or sell all my possessions and give to the poor, but yet do not do it out of love, it profits me nothing. That, uh, that everything in it uh, has to revolve around that principle of love. But anyway, it took me years to just simply finally waking up to that. And I thought, man, how many... How many times over the years, uh, like he's talking about walking in the light and having fellowship with one another and all, how many times have you been in a situation where you were not even in fellowship with people that honestly were devout Christians and all, who did love and all, because of haggling over some point that you couldn't see eye to eye, and yet in the process, breaking a relationship and define the very principle that he's talking about, and that's the principle of love. Uh, Okay, let's see. Uh, come on down in that uh, 
second chapter, verse 22 now. Uh, he's concerned about the uh, uh, this thing about the deity of Jesus now. Verse 22, who is the lie? It is a man who denies, that's chapter 2, I should have said. Who is a liar? It's a man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Notice now, you, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you also deny the Father. No one who denies the, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that with what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Again, getting back, this is what they were taught from the very beginning. There are people that are trying to pull them away from this by reasoning that Jesus could not be God come in the flesh. And he's saying you literally cannot have God without Jesus. See that what you heard from the beginning, this great truth that he's expounded on remains. If it does, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. And so as long as you maintain that belief in the deity of Jesus and, and maintain that trust in him and walk in this principle of love, the, the walking in the light, then you have eternal life. Okay, now let's see. Uh, come on over to the fourth chapter. I think before you, before you get to the fourth, three and six, okay. extremely, extremely important principles because he says that this state of the kingdom of sin will be a liar. So we do sin, right. uh, but yet in verse 6 he says, no one who lives in him sins in some translations, but the Greek is keeps on sinning. Yeah, that's a good point. Look at that chapter 3 if you worship. This is an area where the uh, literal Greek, again, is a little helpful. It says, everyone who sins breaks the law. Okay, we understand that. I'll start back at verse 4. Or chapter three, three. Four. Mm -hmm. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sin. And in him, there is no sin. No one who lives on lives in him. Now, the King James and some of the others say that uh, no one who lives in him sins. And this, this here, I'm reading from the New International, says no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And I think that says in that latter part, uh, uh, no one who sins knows him. Is that correct? Does somebody have uh, another translation? New American Standard just says, no one who sins has seen him. Okay. All right, now think on that. Now, if you're going to take that with just the rendering that way, no one who sins has seen him. He's already said that if you walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses you of sin. Anybody says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. The Greek word convey has the idea of continuous, and this is why this translates it. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And it has reference to a person who is, on the one hand, saying he's in Christ, but he's going to continue to just live a life of sin itself. In other words, it's not, not a matter of just simply falling short or making a mistake or something, but you're just going to continue in a life of sin. And he said you can't do that. The person who does that literally does not know it. But he, he has come to, to take away sin. Uh, he was saying that over the years you have changed your ideas about uh, what, the, what was it take for like this? Yeah. Uh, doesn't it uh, maturity and the word add to this 
you know, friends friend minds to what you expect and what you know to do to you or that. Right. That's that's right. That what happened, all of us, just like uh, Paul or the Apostle or any of the others of that first century, we were all brought up in a certain environment. And on the one hand, you know, I come to believe in the deity of Jesus and uh, from the study of the evidences for the resurrection and things like that, the evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. And then the group that I was with was very fundamentalist in the sense that they based fellowship only on agreeing with them on, on various points, you know, everybody, these particular points. And then, of course, I noticed that every denomination has their particular points and their fellowship revolves around that point, so whether it's keeping the Sabbath day or not eating certain foods or whatever it may be, you know, that fellowship was, was based on that. And, of course, then... I was involved, and I believe the points that, that we differed on in, in the churches that I was affiliated with was right on those points. And then over the years, I just as I continue to read and study, like you said, and, and one thing that uh, I'd always done is that, uh, that is just continue to read the Bible through and through and through, no matter what, is that no matter what anybody says about their denominations or this point or that point, what I see emphasized in the Bible is belief in love. And, and I find people from within that framework that differed on various points because they were different levels of study or different backgrounds. Like, for example, those Jews that became Christians, and here they were devout Christians and arguing to be circumcised. And they had to be dealt with. And it was all hashed out and everything like that. But that didn't stop them from being a Christian or covered in the blood of Christ because they weren't, you know, that they were wrong on that. And then... Uh, other points that other people believe that they, they all came in as babes in Christ and they were saved because of the blood of Christ, not because of their own merit or anything. But then they were, as they studied, obviously, they would, they would always, if you love God, then obviously you're going to live up to the best of your understanding, you know, whatever that is. And what I think we've done, and I came to the conclusion that I had done with the group that I was in and all, that we had just simply segregated ourselves from other Christians. Uh, and, and it based it not on the principle, our fellowship, not on the principle of belief and love, but we had based it on <clears throat> some meticulous legalistic points that we had pulled out. And if you're going to do that, in fact, you can, you can eventually wind up the closet by yourself. You know, that, uh, if you're going to base fellowship on somebody agreeing with you on every simple point, not that you don't have all truth there, but the point is that we are finite beings that are fallible, and we learn over a period of time. And it, and there's probably no one time when any one of us knows it all. And so that, uh, that with that being the case, there's always going to be differences, even though we have all truth here. The problem is that we come in as babes and we just simply learn over a period of time. And if Christianity had, if our fellowship was based on all of us having the perfect understanding, there never would be any fellowship. Would, uh, in a sense, make us... If if you or I or anyone else had all the knowledge uh, of the Word of God at one time, would, would just uh, make us equal to God and, uh, in a sense. Uh, and I don't know, I haven't seen that person yet that I thought knew it all. Well, it's interesting that uh, in the first century, right? That's right. It's like the person that's looking for the uh, perfect church. Uh, Unless they're perfect, they wouldn't. It would be, but in the same same vein, in the you know that uh, 
when we did, when we dealt, now we've come a long ways in our, you know, fellowship in all of them. When we dealt with it, we pointed out <coughs> what is the two great commands. And then we asked them, uh, do you know anybody keeps those two commands perfect? You know, that, that fulfills that everybody will acknowledge that we fall short of perfect love. Even. I mean, we know that that's where God wants us, and yet we fall short of perfect love because love is something that it says that we're to grow in. And obviously, if I can grow in it, then I'm not perfect in that area. So the two commands that we all understand without any problem, we admit that we fall short on it. Well, then how can we turn around admitting that we fall short on the two perfect commands and, and then base fellowship on something like uh, an incident where uh, I believe that the Lord's Supper should be taken every Sunday and somebody else believes it once a month or somebody else once a year or something like that, and, and yet you've got sincere people who equally believe in God who literally have, have honest, different understandings on those points. And you're dealing with something where a, a direct command doesn't spell out every detail, you know, on that point. Well, then you think, well, how can you come along and make something like this a matter of fellowship uh, with other Christians and your recognition of them, uh, when at the same time that, that we fall short on something that we do know and understand, and here's something where you've got honest people who have honest differences. Just a secular statement in a book, uh, when read by different people, they will all come with a different understanding of that statement because of what they bring from their background and their experiences yeah. It's not to say that the truth isn't perfectly there, but we I think a good example of what you're uh, saying on that, uh, Chris, that the problem that Jesus had when he talked was that their background had taught them a false understanding of the Messiah. They were looking for somebody to come and reign in Jerusalem, and the Jews were going to be God's supreme people that would rule the world, and the kingdom was going to be a physical kingdom and everything. And when he came, and uh, was he wasn't going to conquer Rome. And he was telling them the real problem was sin, and that he was actually going to be crucified. Well, you've got Peter saying, well, Lord, we'll never let this happen to you. you know, and he had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. But he said something was easy to understand, but Peter was bringing all his misconceptions. Well, in the same way, what John is having to deal with here, those people have become Christians based on the, the resurrection of Jesus and their belief in his deity and all. But they all had a background. And, and there were some things in their background and some things that were being said that was actually affecting their understanding. And he's actually dealing with that at this, at this point. But yeah, I think that's uh, that anything that we read, just like when you... We've all read the Bible through, and we go through it, and through it, and through it. Well, why is it that you read it through that umpteenth time and think that you're going to understand it better than you did the time before? It's because when you come through it this time, you're bringing more experiences and more information than you did the last time. And so as a result of those more experiences and more information, you're going to understand some things that you passed over the last time. And then remember what Jesus said to the apostles that, he said, I did not teach you all truth when I was with you, because you were not yet able to bear it. But then when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll guide you into all truth. It was like that that uh, they weren't ready for algebra when they hadn't had arithmetic yet. And that uh, they still, were, it was going to be a gradual type thing in their learning process. Well, if that's true with them, it seems to me that'd have to be true with us today. That you're just not able to understand it all at once because of your background. And then every time that we do learn some particular truth that we didn't know before, well, then our foundation is bigger, and we're much better than able to understand this next truth, and then that next truth beyond that. 
Right. And then a, a development process. All right, let's close on this by looking at uh, this wrapping up in the fourth chapter. And again... Okay. All right. What we're trying to do is simply to point out that John, everything that John is saying in, in, in dealing with this problem revolves around belief in the deity of Jesus and his concept of love. And the Christian fellowship revolved around these two principles of belief in the deity of Jesus, salvation in him, and then the principle of love. Uh, look at that in verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But everyone that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. And then he comes on down, verse 7, what we've already read, let us love one another. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. And so he ties the whole thing together in that fourth chapter. But again, writing to people who did not perfectly understand it all, and were still in the learning process, he lets them know there's false teachers out there. All right, now, what I did for years, and I think others do too, the false teacher was anybody out here who taught something that I believed was wrong was a false teacher, you see. And so the, the Baptist down the road who teaches one set of always saved, I didn't believe that, so he was a false teacher, and I didn't have anything to do with it. But they had people in the church here who had different understandings and they were having to be corrected, whether it was circumcision or whatnot, that this false teacher was not somebody who may be wrong on some particular point or differ with you, but he was somebody that denied the deity of Jesus. And that's who he was concerned with. And he says, this is how you can recognize the, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so now, not the difference in where I would be now and some years back, when I look at a Baptist, I look at an individual that I recognize as a fellow Christian who I believe has a misunderstanding of that particular doctrine. I differ with him. But I, but I do acknowledge that if, he is a, if he's a devout Baptist, he definitely believes in the deity of Jesus. You can't believe, be a Baptist unless you believe in the deity of Jesus. He believes in the deity of Jesus. He believes that your salvation is a result of trust and that atoning sacrifice. He also believes that you ought to love one another and all these moral principles and everything like that. So to take somebody who, who I believe has a misunderstanding of this particular doctrine and just like put ostracize him like I can't have anything to do with or anything, to me is a misuse of what John is saying here. That, he, that in the church at this time, we have people who don't even understand that the law of Moses has been nailed to the cross, and yet they're still Christians, and they're still debating and arguing with them. And what he's concerned with is this person who's denying the deity of Jesus. As long as, as long as you acknowledge the deity of Jesus and walk by love, whatever principle you may be wrong on, living long enough, you're eventually going to get there. I mean, that uh, you, if you love God, and you're not obeying some command, it's because you're ignorant of it. 
Because to say that you know that God has given you a command and you're not obeying it, and yet you love him is a contradiction in terms. I don't know how to word and say you love him. Like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So obviously, if I love God, I'll keep his commands. But there's no way I can keep commands any better than my understanding. And so therefore, that I can love and not be keeping some commands because I'm simply ignorant or have a misunderstanding of them. But if I love, then as soon as I come to understand something to the point, then I'll begin to do it. And, and what you see in the New Testament is that, that these people become Christians, and they're doing some things wrong, they're believing some things wrong, but then as they study and as more information is given, then they correct the various things and begin to do and not do. Those who are studying the Word with an open mind will. Right. If you don't have, and there seems to be certain groups, uh, certain people that are willfully ignorant, God's word. They don't want to know any more than they know already. That means you're not fitting under the, the uh, principles of love. Right. I think the again there. If to say that, uh, for example, if I'm a member of a denomination, we'll say denomination B, and denomination B has its particular statement of belief, and we believe on various things. But if I love God more than anything else, and I love His word then that means that as I study his word, uh, that any time I find a deviation between what this statement of belief says and God's word, I, I go with God's word. Uh, that if I'm going to study God's word from the standpoint of I'm going to make it prove this particular point here, or it's always going to have to prove me right, then I don't know that I really love God's word. It seems to me that I'm just wanting to prove that Paul Cook is right, and, and that's it. And I, I think that a good example, I think, Lonnie, of what, you, what you're saying, like on the prejudice, the religious people that were the most looked up to in the days of Jesus were the Pharisees. And he says that uh, you search the scriptures because uh, that you think you have eternal life, and he said, yet it's they that testify of me, and you, and you reject me. But... Him nor missed the message you said. Right. They were they went to it to prove all of their human traditions, and he said, you know, you even make vain the, the word of God. But they went to it to prove all the things they wanted to believe, but by the same token, we're not really going to it with an attitude of just studying it for, for what it says. Uh, yeah, I think uh, if there could be more studies by people in the various groups just sitting down and talking together, I think in the long run, you'd have a lot, lot more togetherness. That, uh, in other words, this particular doctrine may be that I believe that's wrong. But yet, if I'm in a group where I never hear it challenged, and it's just preached over and over, well, I probably don't think anything about it. Uh, you know, and that's, that's just it. But if I'm in an atmosphere where that particular doctrine is challenged every now and then, what that's going to do to me, it seems to me, is motivate me to restudy my position. And, that, and in the process, I'm going to come a lot closer or maybe reach whatever it is on that point. But I think that when we segregate ourselves and we don't talk to one another and all, then we just keep reaffirming our beliefs in whatever it is that we believe that is wrong. Right. You, uh, well, you constantly hear uh, uh, right. you constantly yeah. reinforcement those points. Oh yeah, it would be the, I think it would be one of the greatest things if Christians would visit among other services and things like that 
and there would, it would be a lot of study, I believe, that would be provoked because you, that, uh, you, sometimes when you've set back, I know there's points that I had believed, and they had been preached over and over, and I'd read pamphlets and books, and I believed them and all, and then when you challenge that is when, uh, I know what happened to me when I got out into a mission field where we were starting a, a you know, school congregation, and some points that... Uh, that uh, that I had just accepted, and uh, the whole environment accepted. Well, here comes somebody you're studying with who doesn't have that background or anything, and they challenge that. And right away, you begin to find where your strengths and your weaknesses are. And for example, I found that I always felt very comfortable in dealing with direct commands of God and love and belief and all. But these things that I believe that were not involved in a direct command, but they were involved of interpolation. Uh, from material, that I feel very uncomfortable sometimes in presenting that, and it helped me to realize that some things that I had believed in a dogmatic way really were in the judgment area, and it's just a judgment one way or the other. Uh, a good example would have been the, uh, the instrumental music in, in worship. That's something we, we just never had it and all, and they said, well, the Bible is silent on it and everything like that. And then, you know, when you sit down and, and you try to teach somebody that it's wrong to use an instrument in worship, and then the first thing you realize is that there's no command there. You just don't have any command one way or the other. And then you just realize that the Bible just really doesn't, New Testament doesn't touch on that subject or anything. And then you finally realize, at least with me, that this is a, a judgment issue. That it's uh, that obviously you don't have to have it, and it, 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 you know anything like that. But to to come up and tell somebody that that is wrong for you to have it, I came to the conclusion that nobody has the ammunition to do that. You just don't have the ammunition to look somebody else in the face and say, "I believe you're wrong for doing it," you know, or anything like that. But I noticed that on things like that, I felt very uncomfortable. But then when it comes to saying, "Thou shalt not kill or steal or commit adultery or anything," I felt perfectly comfortable with that because I had a direct command. Well, I told them out of the game. We don't well, like his call. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when you, if, if we limit ourselves to direct commands, uh, we don't. Christians don't have any real problem with fellowship. Just like take uh, uh, the what I just mentioned. Uh, the once saved, always saved, or something like that. If I could find a direct command that stated that in that way. Well, obviously, I wouldn't have any problem with it. But what I hear is interpolation of text, and then I believe that interpolation runs totally contrary to so many plain statements, like Peter talking about a, a person that, that goes back is like a dog returning to its vomit, or a sow that's washed, and going back in the mire and saying that the latter end is going to be worse for that person than he never knew to. Well, then I can't... That's something that I have uh, when I hear thoughts presented. I hear, I listen to a radio broadcast that has some good, I think, for me, has some good uh, religious information on the programming, but yet I don't agree with all of their documentation. You can also see that a person can do a lot of good if goes wrong at some point. Just like uh, that, uh, take a, a Billy Graham or somebody like that. I'll just use him as an example because he's very popular. 
I don't agree with Billy Graham on every single solitary thing he says. Like, for example, the one say, always say. But when I listen to his sermons, I generally find that about 90% of what he's saying I agree with. In other words, basically, he condemns sin, he promotes the deity of Jesus and salvation in him and all. And I think, well, really, let's say for the sake of argument, he happens to be wrong on that particular doctrine we disagree on. He's still doing a tremendous amount of good. And, right. and not only that, if I'm going to say he can't do any good with what I believe is a misunderstanding of some doctrine, I'm not willing to say that I have a perfect understanding of everything. You might say the same about you. So, right. Then he would have to look at me and say, because I misunderstand some point, and I'm sure that, you know, I, that, right that now, so. I'm not willing to say that I perfectly understand every point. But by the same token, you can do good with those things that you do know and understand, uh, despite whatever's wrong might be. They said his word was wooden and turned void. I thought of a, a real good statement uh, made a few years ago by a preacher friend of mine about this um, unconditional eternal security. He said, I don't believe a person ought to have to go to hell and just because they want to be saved. He said, I didn't want to go. <laughs> he said, really, saying you got to go whether you want to or not. Well, it's pretty hard to, at least from my mind, to. Why in the world would you. Want right there, to walk in sin there. in this life no, 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 and yet want to be where there is not in the next. It simply doesn't make sense to my mind. Right. The uh, Greek literally conveys that. and uh, The King James properly, in the way it was written in 1600, really did too, because when it used the term doeth and believeth, literally, that old English word was very precise with the Greek, because it, it meant a continuous, so whoever believeth in the Son of God, well, that's right, and that, and that involves not just this one point, but an actual continuous, and that word actually conveyed it. In fact, in some ways, some of the old English words were actually more precise in the way we use the language now. Hey, we're careless in our language. In, uh, we, I guess in a lot of ways, Your, uh, Greek language, European language, a lot of those, when you go back to the Greek, they, they are really more specific. Was, there's been quite a bit written, I think, in recent years showing that there is a greater, there has been a trend towards laxity and preciseness mm -hmm. in, our, in our language for some time. You know time. why that is, don't you? It takes more effort to be precise. Well, it's more vocabulary. <laughs> right, and, and then also that uh, the less precise you are, you leave yourselves you more on. ways. <laughs> you leave the back door open, like yeah. easier. Right. <laughs> right. A lot of times we're not precise <laughs> because we have <laughs> applied ourselves to, to learning what is. Yeah. Great. We just kind of float along and bounce off like the water off the rocks and down the stream. We just bounce with it. And we don't want to learn. It takes a little extra to learn. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. It does. It's a whole whole lot. <laughs> Anybody else have any other comments on First John? Anything we missed that anybody want to look at? I tried to hit the what was the tenor of the entire book.